It's one of the distinguishing features of the 18th century that it produced, in but a single generation, three of the greatest historians of all time. Voltaire, David Hume, and Edward Gibbon. The first, a Frenchman, wrote an essay on the manners and spirit of nations, a product of twenty years' labor, interrupted occasionally by amours and exiles, polemics and plays. The work, once completed, was a massive success. Its audience was dazzled by the probing erudition and sparkling wit for which its inimitable author had become, at this point, so deservedly famous. In the best Voltairean fashion, every page of the expansive work was seasoned with irony, festooned with style, and unblemished by providential caprice or design. The second, a Scot, had published his History of England just two years prior. David Hume did so while employed as chief librarian to the Faculty of Advocates in Edinburgh, his country's verdant capital and his family's cherished home. Having exhausted his empiricism, refuted the reality of miracles, and burned no small number of religious bridges along the way, Hume turned in his riper years to the study of history. The radical infidel had finally settled upon a more conservative theme, to the lasting contentment and relief of the British censors to whom, like Voltaire, he'd become a perpetual nuisance. To Hume, throughout his life, history had remained a fascination. Yet his commitment to the fields of morals and epistemology, determinism and human nature, allowed him neither the time nor the leisure for its undivided pursuit. Now, encircled by some thirty thousand volumes in his librarian's post, the aging apostate could immerse himself in what had come to be his life's consuming passion and his greatest delight. Edward Gibbon, a quarter century Hume's younger, looked up to his controversial countrymen in awe. For a child touched with precocity and restless for glory, such an effect on the boy was understandable. Born in London in the year 1737, Gibbon, like every other budding intellectual of his age, was swept away by the overwhelming tide of Hume's brilliance. There seemed to be no field over which 
the diverse and nimble Scotsman hadn't achieved complete mastery, and Gibbon determined, at a rather young age, to follow in the great thinker's wake. He deviated from Hume's course only slightly. Gibbon avoided the shoals of those other philosophical inquiries through which Hume so boldly and deftly navigated. Instead, avoiding all other eddies, he directed his course to the vastness of history's open waters. Little did he anticipate that he'd not only honor Hume's memory, but surpass the great thinker in literary style and historiographical merit. A young Edward Gibbon, not yet thirty years of age, crossed the Alps in April of 1764. He descended from their rugged heights into the gentle foothills of Italy, not as a military adventurer like Hannibal before him and Napoleon after, but as a burgeoning historian, and to a far greater extent than either the Carthaginian or the Corsican, the one from mighty Africa's coast, the other from an overlooked Gallic isle, he was able to capture Rome. Of course, his was a conquest rather of the pen than the sword, but it's never entirely clear which of the two weapons, one forged by steel, the other filled with ink, is responsible for inflicting greater damage. After all, when the corpses are collected and the injuries surveyed, it's never clear which of the two is to be crowned for having produced wounds of greater depth and blows of a more debilitating penetration. Trenchant words can be just as painful as the unsheathed blade, and a sharpened wit rapidly deployed can, at times, be even more injurious than the cannon's fusillade. In due time, Gibbon's conquest of Italy and her amazing empire would be complete. On this date, though, at the heated age of twenty-seven, Gibbon was exploring the city of Florence. This, to the young scholar's delight, was the very birthplace of what you might call rebirth itself, the home of the Renaissance, or that liberating age out of which his own epoch, the Enlightenment, grew. He passed three months among the charming ghosts of Dante and Donatello, Medici and Machiavelli, Vespucci and Da Vinci, en route to his sacred destination. 
the capital of civilization itself, Rome. Compelled southward by some mystical force, driven to the seven hills of timeless veneration, Gibbon arrived at Rome early that autumn. It's at this point we yield to his own memoir, in which he says the following. Quote, it was at Rome, on the 15th of October, 1764, as I sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital, while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the Temple of Jupiter, that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind. End quote. Doubtless, even before encountering this memorable scene, in which the pieties of an ancient faith were carried out against the backdrop of an even older city, the idea of some great literary undertaking had appealed to Gibbon. The bare-footed friars, filling his apostate ears with their beautiful songs, can be thought of as little more than the catalyst by which Gibbon's fleshless plan was, at long last, brought into life. And so, beginning with the end of the reign of Marcus Aurelius, penultimate king of the Antonines, Gibbon pursued his work. The previous glory of the empire was not his subject. The title, after all, is the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and he made no effort to expatiate upon the prosperity, growth, and prior bliss of the first century. It was not Gibbon's intent to mislead you, his was not a catalogue of the triumphs, but an unflinching investigation into the decay and dissolution of a fallen kingdom. He begins at the summit, at the lofty philosophical majesty of the great Marcus Aurelius, only to guide you through the empire's collapse. To the depths does he lead you as did Virgil Dante, ending in the tragic ebb into which it all crumbled. Why, in Gibbon's estimation, did the Roman Empire fall? For one, it was suddenly unwilling to defend itself. The militaristic virtue that once served the empire as its astounding feature, had been castrated and lost. Masculinity had yielded to its opposite, and the noble image of the warrior had been debased. 
for the Empire's defense. Foreigners and barbarians were recruited. Troglodytes and Teutons, unschooled in the history and greatness of Rome. And, worse, unconcerned about the need of her continued survival. They were but mercenaries fighting on behalf of the highest bidder, to whom they owed no loyalty beyond their monthly pay. That was but one reason for Rome's decline and fall. Another, by which a thousand bitter debates and caustic colloquies have since been sparked, is that Christianity is responsible for Rome's collapse. In accordance with Gibbon's view, the rise and popularity of this peculiar Jewish sect weakened Rome from within. It should be noted that religion, in general, wasn't to blame. In Gibbon's words, quote, The various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, and by the magistrate as equally useful. And thus... Toleration produced religious concord. End quote. But the Christians became increasingly exclusive and intolerant. They were zealots upon whom all talk of concord fell flat. Their morals were intransigent and austere. Their faith was inflexible and grating. Their society was preachy and insufferable. Their habits were furtive and seedy, and their preference for a world after this, an alleged empyrean located somewhere beyond the grave, only cheapened the value of that in which they currently lived. To borrow a line from the African sage, Augustine, Christianity caused the Roman people to care less about the city of man and more about the city of God. Alas, the balance had swung too far in the direction of the former, and it couldn't be recovered by Caesar. The official state religion, of which, as Pontifex Maximus, the emperor was also a high priest, was neglected, and, with it, the state itself. In the minds of the Christians, Rome was equivalent to the ancient empire of Babylon, for whose fall the pious multitudes fervently prayed. With the unraveling of Rome, it appeared as though their supplicants' pleas were finally to be answered. Thus, 
over the course of a millennium or more, Rome was to be destroyed and Christianity was to blame. The following is a reading from Gibbon's great work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Book the Fifteenth, Volume One. A candid but rational inquiry into the progress and establishment of Christianity may be considered as a very essential part of the history of the Roman Empire. While that great body was invaded by open violence or undermined by slow decay, a pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men, grew up in silence and obscurity, derived new vigor from opposition, and finally erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the capital. Nor was the influence of Christianity confined to the period or to the limits of the Roman Empire. After a revolution of thirteen or fourteen centuries, that religion is still professed by the nations of Europe, the most distinguished portion of humankind in arts and learning as well as in arms. By the industry and zeal of the Europeans, it has been widely diffused to the most distant shores of Asia and Africa. And by the means of their colonies, has been firmly established from Canada to Chile in a world unknown to the ancients. But this inquiry, however useful or entertaining, is attended with two peculiar difficulties. The scanty and suspicious materials of ecclesiastical history seldom enable us to dispel the dark cloud that hangs over the first age of the church. The great law of impartiality too often obliges us to reveal the imperfections of the uninspired teachers and believers of the gospel. And, to a careless observer, their faults may seem to cast a shade on the faith which they profess. But the scandal of the pious Christian and the fallacious triumph of the infidel should cease as soon as they recollect not only by whom, but likewise to whom the divine revelation was given. The theologian may indulge the pleasing task of describing religion as she descended from heaven, arrayed in her native purity. A more melancholy duty is imposed on the historian. He must discover 
the inevitable mixture of error and corruption, which she contracted in a long residence upon earth among a weak and degenerate race of beings. Our curiosity is naturally prompted to inquire by what means the Christian faith obtained so remarkable a victory over the established religions of the earth. To this inquiry, an obvious but satisfactory answer may be returned. That it was owing to the convincing evidence of the doctrine itself, and to the ruling providence of its great author, But as truth and reason seldom find so favorable a reception in the world, and as the wisdom of providence frequently condescends to use the passions of the human heart and the general circumstances of mankind as instruments to execute its purpose, we may still be permitted, though with becoming submission, to ask, not indeed what were the first, but what were the secondary causes of the rapid growth of the Christian Church? It will, perhaps, appear that it was most effectually favored and assisted by the five following causes. One, the inflexible, and if we may use the expression, the intolerant zeal of the Christians, derived, it is true, from the Jewish religion, but purified from the narrow and unsocial spirit which, instead of inviting, had deterred the Gentiles from embracing the law of Moses. 2. The doctrine of a future life, improved by every additional circumstance which could give weight and efficacy to that important truth. 3. The miraculous powers ascribed to the primitive church. 4. The pure and austere morals of the Christians. And 5. The union and discipline of the Christian Republic, which gradually formed an independent and increasing state in the very heart of the Roman Empire. We have already described the religious harmony of the ancient world, and the facility with which the most different and even hostile nations embraced or at least respected each other's superstitions. A single people refuse to join in the common intercourse of mankind. The Jews, who, under the Assyrian and Persian monarchies, had languished for many ages in the most despised portion of their slaves, emerged from obscurity under the successors of Alexander, and as they multiplied to a surprising degree in the East and afterwards in the West, they soon excited the curiosity and wonder of other nations. 
the sullen obstinacy with which they maintained their peculiar rights and unsocial manners seemed to mark them out as a distinct species of men who boldly professed or who faintly disguised their implacable habits to the rest of humankind. Neither the violence of Antiochus, nor the arts of Herod, nor the example of the circumjacent nations could ever persuade the Jews to associate with the institutions of Moses the elegant mythology of the Greeks. According to the maxims of universal toleration, the Romans protected a superstition which they despised. The polite Augustus condescended to give orders that sacrifices should be offered for his prosperity in the temple of Jerusalem, whilst the meanest of the posterity of Abraham, who should have paid the same homage to the Jupiter of the capital, would have been an object of abhorrence to himself and to his brethren. But the moderation of the conquerors was insufficient to appease the jealous prejudices of their subjects, who were alarmed and scandalized at the ensigns of paganism which necessarily introduced themselves into a Roman province. The mad attempt of Caligula to place his own statue in the Temple of Jerusalem was defeated by the unanimous resolution of a people who dreaded death much less than such an idolatrous profanation. Their attachment to the law of Moses was equal to their detestation of foreign religions. The current of zeal and devotion, as it was contracted into a narrow channel, ran with the strength and sometimes with the fury of a torrent. This facility has not always prevented intolerance, which seems inherent in the religious spirit when armed with authority. The separation of the ecclesiastical and civil power appears to be the only means of at once maintaining religion and tolerance. But this is a very modern notion. The passions, which mingle themselves with opinions, made the pagans very often intolerant and persecutors. Witness the Persians, the Egyptians, even the Greeks and Romans. The Jewish religion was admirably fitted for defense, but it was never designed for conquest. And it seems probable that the number of proselytes was never much superior to that of apostates. The divine promises were originally made, and the distinguishing rite of circumcision was enjoined to a single family. When the posterity of Abraham had multiplied like the sands of the sea, the deity, 
from whose mouth they received a system of laws and ceremonies, declared himself the proper and, as it were, the national god of Israel. And with the most jealous care, separated his favorite people from the rest of mankind. The conquest of the land of Canaan was accompanied with so many wonderful and with so many bloody circumstances that the victorious Jews were left in a state of irreconcilable hostility with all their neighbors. They had been commanded to extirpate some of the most idolatrous tribes, and the execution of the divine will had seldom been retarded by the weakness of humanity. With the other nations, they were forbidden to contract any marriages or alliances, and the prohibition of receiving them into the congregation, which in some cases was perpetual, almost always extended to the third, to the seventh, or even to the tenth generation. The obligation of preaching to the Gentiles the faith of Moses had never been inculcated as a precept of the law, nor were the Jews inclined to impose it on themselves as a voluntary duty. In the admission of new citizens, that unsocial people was actuated by the selfish vanity of the Greeks, rather than by the generous policy of Rome. The descendants of Abraham were flattered by the opinion that they alone were the heirs of the covenant, and they were apprehensive of diminishing the value of their inheritance by sharing it too easily with the strangers of the earth. A larger acquaintance with mankind extended their knowledge without correcting their prejudices. And whenever the God of Israel acquired any new votaries, he was much more indebted to the inconstant humor of polytheism than to the active zeal of his own missionaries. The religion of Moses seems to be instituted for a particular country, as well as for a single nation. And if a strict obedience had been paid to the order that every male, three times in the year, should be present before the Lord Jehovah, it would have been impossible that the Jews could ever have spread themselves beyond the narrow limits of the promised land. That obstacle was indeed removed by the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. But the most considerable part of the Jewish religion was involved in its destruction. And the pagans, who had long wondered at this strange report of an empty sanctuary, were at a loss to discover what could be the object, or what could be the instruments, of a worship which was destitute of temples, and of altars, of priests, and of sacrifices. Yet even in their fallen state, the Jews, still asserting their lofty and exclusive privileges, shunned, instead of courting, 
the society of strangers. They still insisted with inflexible rigor on those parts of the law which it was in their power. Their peculiar distinctions of days, of meets, and of a variety of trivial though burdensome observances were so many objects of disgust and aversion for the other nations, to whose habits and prejudices they were diametrically opposite. The painful and even dangerous rite of circumcision was alone capable of repelling a willing proselyte from the door of the synagogue. Under these circumstances, Christianity offered itself to the world armed with the strength of the Mosaic law and delivered from the weight of its fetters. An exclusive zeal for the truth of religion and the unity of God was as carefully inculcated in the new as in the ancient system. And whatever was now revealed to mankind concerning the nature and designs of the Supreme Being was fitted to increase their reverence for that mysterious doctrine. The divine authority of Moses and the prophets was admitted, and even established, as the firmest basis of Christianity. From the beginning of the world, an uninterrupted series of predictions had announced and prepared the long-expected coming of the Messiah, who, in compliance with the gross apprehensions of the Jews, had been more frequently represented under the character of a king and a conqueror than under that of a prophet, a martyr, and the Son of God. By his expiatory sacrifice, the imperfect sacrifices of the temple were at once consummated and abolished. The ceremonial law, which consisted only of types and figures, was succeeded by a pure and spiritual worship equally adapted to all climates, as well as to every condition of mankind. And to the initiation of blood was substituted a more harmless initiation of water, the promise of divine favor, instead of being partially confined to the posterity of Abraham, was universally proposed to the freeman and the slave, to the Greek and to the barbarian, to the Jew and to the Gentile. Every privilege that could raise the proselyte from earth to heaven, that could exalt his devotion, secure his happiness, or even gratify that secret pride which, under the semblance of devotion, insinuates itself into the human heart, was still reserved for the members of the Christian Church. But at the same time, all mankind was permitted, and even solicited, to accept the glorious distinction which was not only proffered as a favor, but imposed as an obligation. 
it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received, and to warn them against a refusal that would be severely punished as a criminal disobedience to the will of a benevolent but all-powerful deity. It was the first but arduous duty of a Christian to preserve himself pure and undefiled by the practice of idolatry. The religion of the nations was not merely a speculative doctrine professed in the schools or preached in the temples. The innumerable deities and rites of polytheism were closely interwoven with every circumstance of business or pleasure of public or of private life, and it seemed impossible to escape the observance of them without, at the same time, renouncing the commerce of mankind and all the offices and amusements of society. The important transactions of peace and war were prepared or concluded by solemn sacrifices, in which the magistrate, the senator, and the soldier were obliged to preside or to participate. The public spectacles were an essential part of the cheerful devotion of the pagans, and the gods were supposed to accept as the most grateful offering the games that the prince and people celebrated in honor of their peculiar festivals. The Christians, who with pious horror avoided the abomination of the circus or the theater, found himself encompassed with infernal snares in every convivial entertainment, as often as his friends, invoking the hospitable deities, poured out libations to each other's happiness. When the bride struggling with well-affected reluctance, was forced in hymenial pomp over the threshold of her new habitation, or when the sad procession of the dead slowly moved towards the funeral pile, the Christian, on these interesting occasions, was compelled to desert the persons who were the dearest to him, rather than contract the guilt inherent to those impious ceremonies. Every art and every trade that was in the least concerned in the framing or adorning of idols was polluted by the stain of idolatry. A severe sentence, since it devoted to eternal misery the far greater part of the community which is employed in the exercise of liberal or mechanic professions. If we cast our eyes over the numerous remains of antiquity, we shall perceive that besides the immediate representations of the gods and the holy instruments of their worship, the elegant forms and agreeable fictions consecrated by the imagination of the Greeks were introduced as the richest ornaments of the houses, the dress, and the furniture of the pagans. 
even the arts of music and painting, of eloquence and poetry, flowed from the same impure origin. In the style of the fathers, Apollo and the muses were the organs of the infernal spirit. Homer and Virgil were the most eminent of his servants. In the beautiful mythology which pervades and animates the compositions of their genius is destined to celebrate the glory of the demons. Even the common language of Greece and Rome abounded with familiar but impious expressions, which the imprudent Christian might too carelessly utter or too patiently hear.